welcome. This is the Ag Engineering Podcast, where we talk tools, tips, and techniques to improve the sustainability of your farm. I am your host, Andy Chamberlain from the University of Vermont Extension, and this podcast is supported by Northeast SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovation in sustainable agriculture. We're trying to improve the industry by chatting with farmers and getting their input on tools, tips, or techniques that have changed the way they farm for good. Many of these practices affect multiple areas of the farm. Whether it be environmentally, emotionally, physically, or financially, we share the knowledge to promote sustainable agriculture, lifestyle, and business. Thanks for having a listen. Now, let's get started. Today's episode comes to you from Brookfield, Vermont, where we're interviewing Kyle Dota and Betsy Simpson of 1000 Stone Farm. Kyle has been farming for six years, and now he has three acres in vegetable production and an acre in high tunnels. They sell to their own farm store, wholesale, CSA, restaurants, and even year-round farmer's markets. And they're bringing in between two dollars and $300,000 in gross sales. Kyle and Betsy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy, for having us. Thanks. So I just framed the stage a little bit uh, about your farm, but how would you describe yourself in one sentence? We're a small certified organic vegetable farm, which also focuses on mushrooms, fruit, and egg production. The last three episodes we recorded with Kyle and Betsy, we talked about a self-serve farm stand, and we talked about how he uh, has implemented some automation and some easy infrastructure upgrades for his chickens and sustainable chicken production for fertility. Another episode we were talking about was greenhouse sensors on the cheap. Um, so if you're interested in those episodes, you should go back and listen to those prior because today we're talking about a couple off-the-cuff questions that aren't necessarily topic-specific. So if you guys could share and tell me a time when you felt really successful farming. I have to say that I actually find the success of the farm store to be a time that I felt that we made a good decision, we did something awesome for the community, and it helped the farm as well, um, which I think is, for me, successful. We brought more local food to our community than once was available before we started. And we've definitely been dialing in our markets in general, whether that's wholesale, CSA, or farmer's market. You know, whether at farmer's market, we're making our display look better, bringing the products we know are selling better and understanding those numbers better. Um, and that's giving us the results and the feeling of feeling successful. You know, um, when your sales are doing well and you're seeing good responses from your customers and they're excited and i was thinking about chard oh chard chard this year compared to last year the chard was great i liked it a lot (laughs) uh last year our chard beds got really weedy they were covered in grass and they were getting diseases and all sorts of stuff was going wrong with them and then this year we did a couple different rounds. It was gorgeous. We were selling out of it basically every single week. And I love chard anyway because it's beautiful and it's rainbow chard. <laughs> and there's lots of colors. We did use But some, that was successful. Yeah, and this year we, we used row cover on them for a longer period of time to get them to grow 
faster and larger and be healthier to get a better head start, which I think definitely helped a lot. Yeah, and protecting them. Yeah. So the row cover was really what made the difference this year to make chard awesome? or As well as proper fertility and irrigation, I think, as well. Um, all of those things in order to really get enough grow back to allow you to keep picking every single week. Um, I think also another thing we felt really successful about this year was our succession plantings, whether that was with lettuce or carrots or beets, radishes, etc. cetera. Um, one that we really strive to do better on was um, sprouting broccoli, which we really love. Um, we don't do very well with head broccoli, and I also find that financially it's a, a one and done. You know, where sprouting broccoli, you can get about four weeks of harvest to a planting, which on a small scale is huge. Because when you only have so many beds and so much square footage to work with, the more you can get out of each square foot ends up being financially more ideal. Yeah, like this year we definitely did well of having, like, especially with the succession plantings, of, like, being able to have the same thing at market like throughout the entire time like crops that we wanted to be able to do that with but in the past haven't always been able to i think one thing that also is important when talking about market and wholesale that we've been really working on is understanding our prices um, and understanding what the market will allow and what we can allow because there is a point in which you're trying to find this middle ground for the consumer as well as for the farm. And I think that for a long time, it's been unfortunately favoring the consumer in the sense that the prices have been lower for products that cost more to grow. I mean, a great example is that our government subsidizes crops that aren't sustainable to grow because the price that consumers want to pay is lower than the cost of making the product hence milk or corn or things of that nature. If we want to see a sustainable agricultural system, it has to be supported financially, unfortunately. It's just what it is. So on the contrary, to a, a successful uh, succession, successful um, farmer's markets, uh, when was a time that you felt really challenged farming? Cat tunnels. <laughs> yeah, cat tunnels. Cat tunnels and wind. We could say regular head broccoli and cauliflower. Sure. We're really bad you, at growing. Yeah, those. go on that. You you take that and off. And beets. We're not good at beets. I think beets are tricky for a number of reasons. One, there's a lot of pests with them. There's fungal issues. Um, there's also voles eating around the edge of the beets, which is a serious problem as well because now you have an unsolvable product. Um, and also the fertility requirements for beets, I feel like, are tricky, at least for me to... To, to dial in, um, you know, depending on your soil type and drainage and, you know, all of those things really do add up as well as what, what micronutrients you have available. Like, are you putting down boron or are you not like, et cetera. And those kind of things I do think are a little tricky. How have your own practices and decisions been influenced by podcasts or other forms of learning? We were talking earlier how you uh, have not attended many different farming conferences, um, but you're a big podcast listener. So uh, how have listening to podcasts influenced the way you learn? Um, yeah, during the I usually listen to podcasts mostly during the winter. 
though uh, occasionally we I definitely listen to them during the summer, but more so in the winter. Um, it's been great because you're able to, or I'm able to kind of have a conversation basically with myself while listening to someone else. Um, and I get to kind of brainstorm ideas and then I'm bouncing them off Betsy and she's either telling me I'm crazy or I'm not. Uh, I'm like, oh, did you hear this thing? You know, so-and-so said blah, blah, blah. Um, that's a pretty cool idea. And, uh, you know, probably 90% of the time we don't execute those ideas right away, but we're still developing them as we go. Um, I don't know if there's anything specific that I can think of at the moment that came from a podcast directly necessarily. Um, but I would say a lot of my understanding and desire to understand soil health and fertility um, definitely has. I mean, I used to listen to a lot of Farmer to Farmer and, you know, listening to different folks on there talk about that. A lot of folks that um, have a lot of knowledge about different things that really is institutional knowledge that's really amazing to, to, to get a feel for. We definitely read a lot of books pertaining to farming and have found that um, there's a lot of kind of like tidbits and information that you pick up and then start putting together the pieces for your own farm. You know, everyone's farm is different and, you know, folks write books on their farm and how their success stories are or failures for that matter. And, but they're, they're pertaining to their farm. And I think if you asked most of them, they would say that it's not, it's one path, you know? And so I think for, for new farmers in this day and age and everything that's changing about it, trying to put together the pieces to find your own path is really the most important. There's no like perfect solution. I I used to listen to the Farmer Farmer podcast all the time. I think I introduced Kyle to it also. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, and I just love listening to that because it was like, like I would just have headphones in or something like, and to be listening to it or just like out loud on my phone. And like you're farming while you're listening to this. And it's like different ideas getting popped into your head and then you listen to that and you're like, oh, that's a really cool idea. Like, how can I make that work for here? You like the way that someone's doing something, but then you're like, eh, like that's cool, but that works where you are because you're close to a big city or something like that. And I love learning how other people everywhere else are making things work. It doesn't have to be someone close by that's doing it, but I don't know. I just think they're super innovative and just... I like the information that you can get from them. They help you think outside the box a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we can all learn from each other, like, through this podcast. Like, yeah, we talk to each other, but we don't have time to see, like, even Taylor and Jake. Like, we've seen them in person, but we contact each other, like, through Instagram and, like, message. We'll message each other. We email each other. But it's, like, we very rarely actually, like, sit down and talk to them about anything. Busy. Yeah, we're all busy. Like yeah. we're farming. We're trying to make a living farming, and that's a full time occupation. Like it's a full time life. You don't have a lot of time to network and share ideas. Yeah. No, we don't. Uh, but some people do. Some people make time for it in their farming career. Um, I think for us, being a production farm that really focuses on a high volume of production, we just do not fit it into our schedule yet. And I mean, for us, we're doing the wholesale deliveries twice a week every week of the year and market almost every week of the year and then csa we have 46 pickups <laughs> in the year so 
there's not a lot of days that are actually... You don't have an off-season. Correct. We are definitely year-round farming. And that's that's uh, that's unique. It I is. Think. I don't think that it is sustainable forever. Um, I think right now it allows our business to grow at a rate that could be faster potentially than other situations. Um, and it does provide income for both of us, at least even minimally year round. Otherwise we would probably need to get our job, which I would rather not do. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's not sustainable farming, having a side job. Well, it could be. I I mean, mean, some people totally could farm during the summer and then get a winter job and they may enjoy that because it's a break from the farming um, you know, we really both love what we do and are really passionate about it. So I don't really want to stop necessarily. Right. I like a little slow season, which is January and February for us, which is why you're here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we just really love what we do. That's what makes a sustainable farm for you, pushing it through the winter. There's also a pretty reasonable market for winter production. Um, you know, since we're a small farm that's a new farm, we're not going to be jumping on, you know, storage carrots wholesale. You know, we're, we don't have the land for it, nor do we have the infrastructure to store it or harvest it. So we focused on other crops like winter greens, as an example, that um, there never could be enough of, theoretically. Yeah, and in Vermont, it's snow and cold all winter long. And six months out of the year, it's really hard to find local greens. And it's definitely something that people are looking for. Is that your primary crop in the winter? What else are you bringing to market? Um, in the intro, I said you did a, a year-round farmer's market. Uh, what are you bringing to that market? Um, there definitely is a fair amount of spinach. Uh, we did a lot of lettuce throughout the fall up until now, even though it will probably come back again. Um, Definitely storage crops, but there's a lot of Napa, and we still have parsley, and we're doing pea shoots. We also continue to do mushroom production throughout the winter as well. Um, that goes year-round. The And the one thing with storage crops, too, is we only wholesale shallots and winter squash. And that even, we're probably going to X the winter squash. But for the most part, we, we really don't wholesale storage crops at all because we don't need a smaller profit margin on those. And since our walk-in's only a 10 by 12... Uh, we cannot store uh, thousands and thousands of pounds of uh, storage crops. So it's um, it's one of those things that we kind of realize that you're able to, we don't have to store fresh greens. They're in a greenhouse. So um, we went that direction and it's seeming to work. What other ideas would you benefit to know more about? For me personally, I've been really interested in some of the topics we've been touching on a little bit which is the soil fertility and uh, microbiome of your soil and what is actually going on biologically in the soil Um, I really don't have a great deal of understanding yet of what is happening there I know that I add lots of organic material lots of compost and technically there is fungi and bacteria in that but what are the ratios what ratios do I want for certain crops you know certain crops do want a higher fungal to bacterial rate certain crops want a lower fungal to bacterial rate how do we assess that as farmers in different locations like and what what tools do i need to do that um 
and how do I understand the information that I'm gathering from those tools? Because it's not as simple as sending out a soil test. Yeah, a soil test tells you your NPK and maybe your micronutrients and whatever, but it's not telling you none of those things are available to your plants at the rate that they could be without your microbiology being healthy. And so with healthy microbiology, we could be spending less time and money on putting inputs into our fields and still get healthy, happy plants with good production. But there's not a lot of conversation going on about that yet. <laughs> but that's a lot of, like, unknown It's a lot of unknown stuff, stuff. Yeah. absolutely. Like there's not much information out there in general. <laughs> right. Or it's in an academic realm that we're not really tapping into yep. as much. Um, so that is definitely, for me, one thing that, that I really want to know more about. So if anybody has any good <laughs> agronomy uh, podcasts or tips, uh, send it over Kyle's way. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, uh, if I find a, a farmer who knows some information about soil health, we'll get him on the podcast too. So Maybe next year once I have my microscope. <laughs> yeah, okay. I feel like we could say like more information on no-till at our scale and using cover cropping more effectively like, yeah in our climate <laughs> that's a huge thing um, and silage tarps you know like we have been i've been trying to work on a way where we're cover cropping a plot while having a plot like a section of it be silage tarped and moving the silage tarp and then where does the compost get added in so that we can have sterile beds for direct seeding with minimal weeding but it takes time to develop that process and understand how that works well um, and what tools um, work well with it. What are you excited about in your next year of farming? Everything. <laughs> Is that what the are answer? we excited yeah. about? Um, <laughs> I'm excited about more cover cropping with grazing chickens, um, for sure. I'm excited about the fact that we... For the first time this year, we're able to spread our own compost in the fall um, on a number of plots, and I'm really excited to see how those perform next year. Uh, growing in more high tunnel space. We did. Uh, we were able to put up more high tunnels this year, and we have more going up next year. Um, it's exciting. It's exciting. It's definitely exciting. Yeah. I think in in our climate the ability to have covered growing space is a huge bonus. It's extremely short season, and everyone is growing in that one period of time, which is summer. In order to find a market for our products, the only thing I could find was the shoulder seasons. And so that's just kind of where it started to morph into um, because there wasn't as many people doing it. Um, so we didn't have to compete with as many farms to have accounts for wholesale or even just customers at farmers market do you think having some level of covered space is uh you know a critical need in order to be a sustainable farm of your scale in this climate yeah yes i think in any climate to be honest even if you were in the tropics you would want shaded structures so you could actually get proper germination and consistency i mean to some degree i think it's an arguable statement um but yeah, in the Northeast, I would say without a doubt. I mean, maybe you could design a business model for your farm around a 
a small amount of covered space, but you would still want something in order to, like, let's say we only grew during the main season, didn't do any shoulder season crops or anything like that, then we would want something depending on the number of starts we were doing. But let's say even the only solution that I could think of would be like completely direct seeded and storage crops. If that was your only thing that you were doing, in that case, yeah, you would not need a high tunnel, which could work, theoretically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. If that's your market, then sure. I think for for us in Vermont or and where we, you know, our markets that we're located in, there are already so many producers that do storage crops that it wasn't viable for the amount of land that we have and the tools that we had access to or still do have access to to really produce storage crops on a scale in which was cost-effective to wholesale them. I'm excited about having a good peppery year. Yeah, I, I second that. <laughs> it's going to happen. Three years ago, we had two great pepper years in a row. Mm-hmm. And the last three years have been eh, so-so. Yeah, this year and the year before were pretty terrible. Pretty not so amazing. So what are you changing this year um, besides crossing your fingers? Uh, yeah, they're going to be good. good. There's peppers. no question. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> they're going to be good. <laughs> last year was bad enough. This year will be better. <laughs> so the two years before that that were good, we had them in covered spaces. And we did have really good Chichito peppers this year, which was also in a covered space. Basically, we live in Vermont, and hot crops want to be hot. Er, <laughs> then not. So it's definitely a thing. I mean, obviously with peppers, you can still get aborted flowers if the temperatures are above 75 degrees overnight and stuff like that, which works out well for us. But that that's not always 100% like everything's done, but it definitely can be affected. Um, so last year and the year before, your peppers were just out in the field. Correct. Yeah, this past year they were out in the field not in a great place. So you're getting them undercover this year? Yes. yes. And the year before that, we had the tarnished tarnished plant, plant bug, bug, and that was that is a terrible bug. <laughs> it's not very nice. It's terrible. I haven't heard of too many people making friends with that bug. No. No, no not at all. <laughs> all right, well, here's to 2020, the year of the good peppers again. Absolutely. Yeah. Back at Thousand Stone Farm. <laughs> Is there any other topics that you'd uh, like to share or talk about that we haven't covered? All farmers should wear Crocs. Crocs. Yes. All right. So that's your shoe of choice. Uh, I know Summer a- shoe of choice. Okay. That's fair enough. Uh, I know there's other farmers that love Crocs. Why do you love Crocs? They're comfortable. You can slide in and out of them. Waterproof. We get the closed-toed ones for yep. the kitchen. So for your industry, chefs, etc. style with the slip-resistant bottom. Um, and they actually come with uh, added cushion support, I think, as well. It's like a little orange. It sounds like a fancier crop. It's a little fancier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine right, right. Oh, mine does. Yeah. yeah, I think they're they're nice. They're durable. I mean, we wear boots depending on, you know, what we're doing. But generally speaking, like, for washing stuff, you don't need to put on waterproof boots. And, you, like, you're, you're not standing in water um, so all around. So you wear socks with your Crocs? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's the more, <laughs> it's, it's way more style. style. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, unless it's raining out, basically, I wear my Crocs the entire season until it's winter. Like, and I harvest, wash, pack, basically everything that there is on the farm. So you don't care when you go out in the morning and it's all dewy because they'll just dry off 
Yeah, like they're closed. Really toast, so it. So yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. That's true. Yeah, you don't get water in them. That makes sense. Yeah, it's the I would not wear the open toe ones. Right, that no, would be I terrible. <laughs> then you're just wet socks and squi- wet oh, socks or squeaky feet. Or yeah, it's <laughs> no good. No good. Thank you, Kyle and Betsy, for being on the show. If people want to learn more about you and your farm, how can they follow along and get a hold of you? Uh, they can check us out on Instagram or Facebook, uh, Thousand Stone Farm, and they can also check out our website at thousandstonefarm.com and email me or Betsy at Kyle or Betsy at thousandstonefarm.com. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you learned something today or plan to make a change on your farm, let me know. I'd love to receive any feedback you have. Just click the link in the description to submit the form. It will help the future of this podcast to be a resource that is helpful for you. And while you're at it, I hope you go ahead and subscribe, share this with a friend, or leave a comment. And if you want more information, check out the show notes on our website at agengpodcast.com. That's A-G-E-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day. The proceeding has been a production of University of Vermont Extension. For more information on Extension, log on to www.uvm.edu slash extension.